welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we thank you for the, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you sent your own son. You did not spare your own son. How will you not graciously give us all thanks? As Romans 8 says, we live in grace. We are existing in an environment of grace, and that's all due to your generosity through your Son, by your Spirit, and so we're thankful. We pray, Lord, this morning that you would um, convict, that you would disrupt, that you would awaken. Lord, we pray that you would give true saving faith to those who need it. Lord, we pray that we would leave changed because we had encountered you, the living God. Think about Moses when he would go up and he would meet with you, and he'd come back with his face glowing. Lord, we pray that we'd be changed by being with you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have been so faithful to consistently, week after week, come and speak through your word. And so we're excited to hear what you have to say, and we're thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is the beginning of our new series in Exodus. Exodus is the second book in what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They're traditionally believed to be been written by Moses, at least most of it. I say most of it because Deuteronomy 34 has Moses' death scene, which would have been awkward for him to write ahead of time. He'd be like, and what else? Oh, you know, right? And so uh, perhaps Joshua's involved in that, not in killing Moses, but in writing down what happened to Moses. Perhaps Joshua was involved in writing that. He was his helper. But Exodus, I want to give you a kind of a, a quick overview of Exodus, and I want to start with the creation of the universe, okay? This won't take long. It sounds like it would. God created everyone and everything for his own glory. He has created you and every human being to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Human beings are God's favorite part of his creation. He loves us. He wants us to know him as father. Tragically, though, we as humans have rebelled against his purpose, and we've plunged this beautiful world into chaos and suffering. And so when you see all this chaos and suffering, we don't say, like, why did God do this? We look at ourselves, that our sin has ruined this place. But God promised really quickly after in Genesis 3 that one day he would send a Savior who would remove our sin and restore the world. Fast forward uh, to chapter 12 of Genesis, around 2000 BC, God approaches Abraham, and he tells him that the Savior of the world will be one of his descendants. And then you have Abraham has uh, a son named Isaac, Isaac has a son named Jacob, I won't do the whole genealogy. Uh, Jacob has 12 sons, one of them is named Joseph. Joseph is betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery, he ends up in Egypt as a slave, he, through workings of God, he ends up working his way up, being second in command under Pharaoh in Egypt, which is awesome in God's providence because a famine hits and he's able to invite his whole family, 70 people, even the scoundrels that sold him into slavery, to come into Egypt and to eat from the food of Egypt, and they live there for hundreds of years. And now when we get to the book of Exodus, what we're seeing centuries later is that the number of the Jews has increased exponentially. There's tons of them. In fact, the Egyptians start to fear the Jews and enslave them. God sends Moses to demand that Pharaoh lets his people go. Pharaoh refuses, spoiler alert. And then God sends 10 plagues. And eventually, and I'm saying this because some of you actually have literally never heard the story of the book of Exodus, okay? So if some of you are like, I saw the Prince of Egypt, I got it. Like, I'm doing this so we all are on the same page, okay? So God sends a series of 10 plagues, and eventually Pharaoh lets God's people go. They're off, they're taking off, and, and, and Pharaoh changes his mind. He pursues them. They come up to the Red Sea. At the Red Sea, God parts the sea. The people are allowed to 
cross in on dry land. The Egyptians try to fall and they get drowned, right? And then God miraculously provides them food and uh, water as they travel. He guides them with a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of smoke during the day until they come to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up there. He receives the law, the Ten Commandments, and the other laws. Um, while he's up there, the people create a golden calf, worship it. He comes down, gets super angry. Moses intercedes with God, and God actually forgives them and remakes the tablets, and they move on. The last uh, five chapters of Exodus are mostly about the building of the tabernacle, which will be this portable uh, temple that God will travel with them. Um, Exodus is, as you can tell from that, an exotic book. It's foreign to us in our experience. It records things that happened well over 3,000 years ago and in a very different culture. But what you'll find, guys, when you study Exodus, the more you drill into it, the more you see that this isn't just a story of ancient Israel. This is also our story. And the reason it's our story is because Exodus is not just historical. It is that. It's also theological. What I mean by theological is it teaches us who God is and how we can know him and enjoy him. And so Exodus is both historical. I'll just tell you right up front, I believe everything in Exodus actually happened. I'm not ashamed of that. I see no reason to be. I am just like, right there. It all happened. And yet, everything in that book is also teaching us something about God. And you say, well, how can that be? That can be because God not only inspired the writing of Exodus, he inspired the writing of history. So the events that are recorded in Exodus were events that God actually authored in history to teach us who he is and how we can know him. And so this morning, before we get into kind of the chapter by chapter over the next few months, I want to go through three big themes. I want to give you guys three kind of handles to put on this thing. And what I would invite you guys to do is read Exodus. Exodus is very readable. It's very exciting. It's got lots of wonderful things in it. It's, it's a very interesting book. It can be read in a sitting. We read in two sittings. Um, but read straight through it. See what themes stick out to you. But I'm going to do three themes. And I'd like you guys to open Exodus because I'm going to, at some points, point at a passage here and there throughout. And it'd be good to look at it. But I'm going to point out three themes, and the three themes are this. One of them is God's presence. One of the themes is God's covenant promise. And the other theme is freedom. Okay, so we got God's presence, God's covenant promise, and freedom. First, the presence of God. This is a huge theme in Exodus is the presence of God. And I mean his presence in his felt, enjoyed, known presence. Because obviously God is present. Well, maybe not obviously. The Bible teaches that God is present everywhere. He's omnipresent. When I say the presence of God, I'm talking about his felt, enjoyed, known presence. Isn't it true that you and I experience the presence of God in varying degrees, right? Even throughout a week, even throughout a day, even throughout an hour. And so this book is largely about God's presence. In the beginning of Exodus, the Jews probably felt like God had abandoned them. I mean, things started off well. They ended up there through Joseph. They enjoyed the benefits of, of Joseph's work as a family. And then centuries later, they're out of favor. They've fallen out of favor with the Egyptians. They've been put into slavery. They probably easily felt like God had left them, like God had abandoned them. Even in the telling of the story we're going to see next week where Moses is, you know, he's, he's born and his mom puts him in a little basket, puts him in the river, and then uh, the da daughter of Pharaoh finds him and stuff. That whole story is told as if it's like, oh, wasn't that lucky? It doesn't say, and then God stirred up the daughter of Pharaoh. And none of that, right? It's almost like God isn't involved in the story. But it isn't lucky, right? Just like the book of Esther, the silence of God does not mean the absence of God. Amen? It's true in our lives too, right? 
the silence of God does not mean the absence of God. God was actually sovereignly working in this story. Even in the first few chapters where you don't hear much from him, he's sovereignly, secretly preparing their rescue. And then in chapter 3, the one that um, David referenced this morning, God promises he's going to really bring his presence to be felt and known with his people. Exodus 3, 7 says this. Take a look at it. It's so beautiful. And I'd actually say there's, there's at least four words to circle in this. But Exodus 3, 7 says this. I have surely seen, that would be good to circle. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cries because of their taskmasters. I have known their suffering, and I've come down to deliver them. I think it would be really worthwhile to circle seen, heard, known, and come. And he says that I've come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out to a land that's good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then throughout the book of Exodus, we see an increase in God's felt, known, enjoyed presence. And it starts off real small. It starts off with a little burning bush, right? And then what's the next thing? Then God's known not just in a little burning bush, but a big burning pillar, right? And then a little bit later, he's known from a mountain with fire on it, right? And then after that, he actually dwells with his people in a tabernacle. So it starts with like a sense of not really feeling God's presence, and it ends with them having God in a tabernacle, and smoke fills it, and he's obviously with them. Isn't that cool? There's this flow of the presence of God. Exodus, guys, shows us how eager God is to dwell with his people, and they were a real pain, He's eager to dwell with his people. It shows us in Exodus how much he wants to share his presence with you. Regular you. With the week you had you. He wants to share his presence with you. In fact, centuries later, God takes it a step further, and he, he becomes a real man and walks among them. John 1.14 says this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt there, that Greek word, it means tabernacled. That God tabernacled in the person of Jesus Christ, that he came and dwelt among us as a man. And that just shows us how much God wants to be with us. And he tabernacles with us today. How? In the person of the Holy Spirit. The Bible constantly talks about our our bodies as a tent, and God is now, in his people, those who trust in Christ, God is inhabiting the tent of your body. One day we're going to enjoy the full presence of God. We're going to see him face to face. Revelation uh, 22 says, and they shall see his face, which is the definition of heaven. We shall see his face. We'll enjoy his presence. And guys, that's our greatest need. Your greatest need is the presence of God. Your greatest need is experience the presence of God. Guys, our world, the people in our world are dying because of a lack of the felt presence of God. When I got my um, Apple Watch, which I'm not trying to show off, here it is. My Mason would say I'm flexing. He's flexing his watch again. When I got it, it originally came with a reminder to breathe. Did yours? So everyone's like, and it's like, breathe. And I'm like, oh, thanks. You know, as if like I'm going to suffocate without this. How did I survive without you before? Guys, but I'll tell you this, many Christians are suffocating from a lack of the felt presence of God. You guys, I get to meditate on Scripture and enjoy the felt presence of God for like an hour or two hours a day. I can do that. And you know what? You can too. You guys realize that? I have no special access. I have no special card, no special pass. I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit and I have God's Word in my hand, which is an incredible miracle. And you do too. Anywhere you are, because the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you're the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit, 
Anywhere you are, you could open up this book, you could pray that God reveal himself, and you could have like a tent of meeting like Moses had. Every day. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Okay. The presence of God. And I would say too, isn't it amazing, guys, when I talk about that, isn't it amazing how much 30 minutes of that can sort you out? Like, I'm so messed up. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm so depressed. I'm so anxious. I'm so this. I'm so that. Like, everybody's a jerk. I hate everybody. And you spend 30 minutes in the presence of God. You ever notice how your soul can get sorted out? Sometimes less. I mean, it doesn't take much time being in God's presence. And we can have that, guys. Anytime we can have life given to us. Exodus shows us how eager God is for us to meet with him. I love Psalm 27, 8. David says this to God. He says to God, You have said, seek my face. And it says, my heart says, your face, Lord, do I seek. Isn't that cool? Shouldn't that be our response to the God of Exodus? So my prayer is that God would use the book of Exodus to arrest our attention, right? We need our attention arrested, don't we? We need him to like pull up behind us, throw on the lights and the siren and arrest our attention, don't we? Because, guys, the powers of evil have always wanted to pull our attention away from God. That's like a tactic from the beginning. But you guys realize, and here's my rant that you expect, you guys realize that we live in a day when multi-billion dollar companies, their whole job is to harvest your attention. They harvest attention. That's what they do for a living. It's been said, if, if, if a product is free, you're the product. Your attention is being harvested and sold. Attention that belongs to God. And so we need this, guys. We need this from, you know, spiritual powers. We also need it because of the culture we live in. Hebrews 2.1 says this, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. And so we need God to use Exodus to disrupt us, to wake us up, and to get our attention. Second theme, covenant promise. Second theme I see in here is God's covenant promise, that he's made promises and he's fulfilling them. And he's especially fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Look at Genesis 12.1. Genesis 12.1 says this, God meets Abraham and he, and he says to him, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is called the Abrahamic covenant. This is the covenant God made to Abraham. And he promises him that he's going to make him a great nation, that he's going to give his people a land, and that he's going to bless all nations through his offspring. So somebody born from Abraham is going to bless all nations. Notice that this covenant is unilateral. It says over and over again, I will, I will, I will, I will. There's not very much, you will, you'll do this, you'll do that. I'm going to do this. And notice that it's a covenant of grace. It's grace. It's God's gracious promise to do these things. Abraham's, you know, in Ur, he's worshiping some sort of pagan deity, I'm sure. And he's called out and God says, I'm going to do all these things for you. Follow me. Isn't that amazing? And in the beginning of Exodus, we see God fulfilling some of that promise. If you look at Exodus 1-7, you see that he's starting to fulfill the promise of a people. A massive amount of people. They went in 70, and Exodus 1, 7 says, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. He's also making good on the promise of a land. He's going to lead them out of Egypt, and he's going to take them to the promised land. Exodus 2, 24 says that God heard their groanings, and he remembered the covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So when you see these guys and they go out in the wilderness and they're acting like jokers and God keeps on staying with them, he keeps staying with them because of the promise he made to Abraham. 
There's a covenant he made, and he gets reminded of it over and over again. So when, these, when they're rescued from Egypt, it's because of God's promise in the Abrahamic covenant. It's not because they kept the Mosaic covenant, because they did not keep the Mosaic covenant, right? They actually broke it right away. So they're saved by trusting in the promises through Abraham, not by law-keeping. You know? they, they actually broke the Abrahamic covenant, or the Mosaic covenant, before it was fully given to them. You guys realize this? Moses is up on the mountain, he's writing it down, and they're breaking it. Like, before it's even delivered, he's broken it. Remember the scene? You know, God's up there on the mountain, and he's dictating from the Lord what the laws are, and then the Lord all of a sudden goes like, Moses, you better go down there and check on him. He's like, what's going on? Just, just go check. They go down there, and they've made this golden calf, and they're worshiping it loudly, very charismatic, happy worship, you know, for this idol. And then what happens? They broke the law covenant. And so Moses powerfully breaks the tablets, right, as an illustration, like, okay, here's your Mosaic covenant, and it's broken. You broke it right off the bat, you know? And you might think to yourself, wow, that Mosaic covenant didn't work very well, did it? No, it worked really well. It, was, that, it did exactly what it was designed to do. Mosaic covenant was designed to show them their need for a savior. That's what the Mosaic covenant is for. You read Galatians, talks all about that. It was designed to show them their need for a savior. And so they got that point right off the bat, right? When Moses pleaded with the Lord to forgive the people, he invokes the Abrahamic covenant, right? In, in Exodus 32, 13, you know, they, they've broken this Mosaic covenant and Moses pleads with God to forgive them based on Exodus 32, 13. He says, Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself. And you said, surely I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised you I'll give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. He's basically saying like, Lord, I know. I know they're awful, but you promised, didn't you? The Lord's like, I did promise, right? And so he keeps his promise. It's a promise of grace. They were saved not by their own faithfulness to God, but by God's faithfulness to his promise. And how does this relate to you? It relates very directly to you, and that's why I bring this up, is that if you're trusting in Christ... As Savior, you're part of the same covenant of grace. And God saves you based on his, his faithfulness, not yours. Galatians 3.29 says this, And if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And you say, well, I'm Swedish. Yeah, but you're still Abraham's offspring according to the promise. This is what it says. And if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, you trust in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heir according to the promise. You are in this covenant promise of grace. And the Abrahamic covenant actually has like kind of two phases. I have a diagram, which, you know, we'll see. I got Abrahamic covenant all the way across. You got Abraham, Genesis 12, 15, and also 17. It's not on there. And then, uh, so Abrahamic covenant starts there. Moses, he gets the law. He arrives at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. And then you've got Old Covenant, right? And then you've got the coming of Christ, and you've got New Covenant, right? Both the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant through Moses, and the New Covenant are, are aspects of the Abrahamic Covenant. And so when you think about the Old Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant, Abraham's promised an offspring, and that offspring is the nation of Israel. He's also promised a land, and that land is the land of Canaan. And we see those promises starting to be answered here in Exodus. Not yet, but it's, it's on its way. And then when we think of the new covenant, the new covenant, the, the offspring promised to Abraham were both Jew and Gentile believers. That's us. And the land that was promised is the new earth. The land that was promised was a world to come. And so 
every tribe and nation and language and people become that trust in Christ become a part of his offspring that number more than the stars. So many sons as Father Abraham, right? You know the song. We'll sing it later. Maybe Chad has that one for us. <laughs> What's really neat is that Abraham is promised a land, the land of Canaan. And in Romans, it says that he ends up receiving a land that's much bigger. In Romans 4.13, it says, The promise to Abraham and to his offspring is that he would be heir of the world. Isn't that amazing? It's super amazing. Okay, so like the Israelites in Exodus, we are saved not by our own faithfulness to God, but by God's faithfulness to his covenant promise. And I would just ask you, isn't that good news? Because how long would your faithfulness earn you with God? I mean, we're like the Israelites, right? The law is being written down and not even handed to us yet, and we've already broken it, right? We're sinners. We need grace. We need, we need a Savior, and that's what the, the law shows us. We're saved through the faithfulness of one perfect descendant from Abraham. And when you read in Genesis, and it talks about an offspring and, and everybody being blessed through the offspring of Abraham, one thing you might not see until later is that there's a singular offspring, Jesus. Galatians 3.16 says this, Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say seeds, referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. And so the one that would be born from Abraham, the true offspring of Abraham that would bless all nations is Jesus Christ. And he's the one that perfectly keeps God's law. None of Abraham's offspring ever kept it. None of us have kept it. And then one was born who perfectly kept the law in our place. And what's really cool, guys, and maybe this is, I know we're in the weeds a little bit. I like this stuff, okay? Um, and so we're doing what I want. But um, what's really cool is in Matthew, have you ever noticed in Matthew, in the beginning chapters of Matthew, Matthew seems intent on showing that Jesus fulfilled all the things that God's people could never fulfill. And, for example, uh, chapter 2, it shows Jesus coming up out of Egypt. Interesting, right? Hmm. Coming up out of Egypt, Jesus, you know, remember they fled to Egypt and they come back from Egypt into Israel. That's in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, Matthew shows Jesus passing through the waters of baptism, just like Israel passed through the Red Sea. Coincidence? I think not. Then in chapter 4, he gets tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, just like God's people were tempted for 40 years. Coincidence? I think not. And as Jesus is tempted, what happens? He responds with God's word from what book of the Bible? Deuteronomy. Coincidence? I think not. What is Matthew trying to do here? He's trying to show that Jesus is the one who is able to keep all the things God's people have never been able to keep. He's showing that Jesus was faithful in all the things that God's people are unfaithful. Or as Hebrews says, he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And we, like the Old Testament believers, are saved by Jesus' faithfulness not our own. Jesus' perfect obedience secured all the blessings we receive. When we trust in him, we get his perfect life credited to us. It's called his active obedience. It's credited to us. Um, and then and Jesus died on the cross as the true Passover lamb. He's our substitute, killed in our place, removes all our sins. Theologically called the passive obedience, removes all our sins. So we get his righteousness credited to us. We get our sin credited to him. He pays for it on the cross. And so Jesus is, it's Jesus' faithfulness. And so I just say to you this morning, if you're not a believer yet and you're like, I don't know what he's talking about, let me tell you this. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. 
and you will be saved by his perfect righteousness, not your own. So themes, presence, covenant, one last one, and I intend to go fast, which is freedom. Probably the most obvious theme in Exodus, right, is freedom. They're, they're slaves in Egypt, and they're being set free. Exodus means exit or departure, right? It's about getting out. It's about getting out of slavery. But what's really interesting is we love freedom, right? Americans, all of you, maybe some of you visiting from other lands. We love freedom, right? We love freedom. But guys, the freedom that the Bible talks about is not the freedom to be an autonomous self. The freedom that the Bible talks about is not to be free to do whatever your sinful desires want, right? That's not freedom in the Bible. Actually, Jesus calls that slavery, okay? In John 8, 31, Jesus says this, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then the Jews who were listening to him said, We're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone, which is a really weird thing for them to say. How is it that you say we'll become free? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, right? So freedom is not freedom to do whatever our sinful desires want to do. That's actually slavery. That's what he's freeing us from. And God actually came and freed his people from Egypt for the purpose of them becoming his servants. So what what God's doing when he's setting them free from Egypt is he's, he's freeing them from an evil master, Pharaoh, and he is bringing them to be his servants, that he would be their new master. It's a change of masters. It's not just like, we're free, we're going to be crazy, and just run around the desert, right? No, they're being freed to a new master. And God says this up front. Take a look at this. Exodus seven sixteen. he says this. Let my people go that they may what? Serve me in the wilderness, right? Isn't that interesting? So they're being freed to follow God. They're being freed from a bad slavery to actually be servants of a better master. And that's why our series is Freed to Follow. That's the whole theme of it. That's why you got those cards that Lee made is that's the theme of the whole series. Guys, true freedom, listen to this, true freedom is to actually want to do what is right and be able to do it. Okay, let me, let me give that to you again because it's super important because it's totally not what our culture teaches, but it's so evidently true when I say it, okay? Real freedom is the desire to do what is right, and the ability to do it. You're really free when you want the right thing, and you can actually do it. That's the freedom that Jesus is giving us in the gospel. It's a freedom to desire and do what he commands. And doing God's law, guys, is not the way we get saved. Doing God's law is our happy response to being saved, right? This is our happy response to being saved. And you see this in the Exodus too. When did the Jews get the law? after they were freed from Egypt, right? It was after they were saved from Egypt. So it's like, I chose you, I saved you, and then here's the law, how you respond. Isn't that interesting? We tend to think when we read Exodus and stuff that it's, you know, it's all, oh, it's a bunch of legalism or whatever. There's grace built right into this thing. It's, I've, I've chosen you, you're my people, you're a mess, I freed you, and now here, come, this is how you can respond to me. And it's a law, like I said, they immediately broke and God didn't leave them, and that's grace. God gave them his law as a way for them to respond to his love. Take a look at the Ten Commandments. Look at how it starts. Exodus 20, verse 2. I hadn't noticed this until fairly recently. Look at how it starts. Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the household of slavery, and then he gives the law. There could almost be a therefore there, right? 
I'm the God. I'm your God. I brought you out of, I saved you. Now do this. Now respond in this way. Guys, God's commandments show us, who are already saved, how we can love him back. I've said it before this way, but it's like his love languages. You know, it was just Valentine's Day, and you guys are probably like, I don't know, our culture's super into love languages. I think it's useful as long as it's not like you're like talking about yours all the time. As long as you use it to love someone else, and you're not like, this is not speaking my language, you know, it's like, ugh, such a burden. It becomes a, a legalism of its own. Use it to love other people, not to demand something from someone else. Anyway, that's beside the point. The, the law of God are his love languages. Remember, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So it's like, okay, you've saved me, you've redeemed me, you've sent your son, he died for me, I'm saved, I'm right with you, and now what do I do to show how I love you? What do I do to, in response? Like, how do I show that I'm thankful and I love you? And, and God, the answer in the word would be keep his commandments, right? There's love languages. The Reformed theology talks about this as the third use of the law. The law has three uses. It shows what sin is. That's really helpful. It shows us our need for Christ, which we already talked about. And then the third use of the law is it shows us how to love him back. Isn't that cool? It's real simple, actually, when we break it down. It's the way we love him back. And there's an interesting and amazing picture of this right after the Ten Commandments. So right after the Ten Commandments, you get into all this case law. And the first one is really interesting. The first one is, what do you do if you have a slave that served six years and they're free to leave, but they want to stay? Isn't that interesting? And it says specifically, if he loves his master and he wants to stay. And there's this whole routine, and you put the ear up to the doorpost and whack a, a nail through it, you know, and, and, and pop a hole in his ear, and it's a marker that he's his. his. And um, I just think the Lord's trying to show us something there. If that's the heart we should have, right? He's freed us, and we love him. We want to stay. We want to serve him. I mean, when we see the type of master that he is, Philippians 2 says that the type of master we have, though he was God, emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You've been saved by a master like that. Do you want to stay? You want to serve him the rest of your life? Do you find that you love him? I do. Do you? Then you've been freed to follow. You're feeling that in your heart. Your heart's saying, I love this master, you know, and I'm really bad at following him, but I want to, you know, and, and I want to be better at it, and I want to increasingly be freed more and more to follow him. The Lord's Supper, guys, is our weekly celebration of that amazing love. It's the love we see on display in Exodus, which rumbles way louder in the Gospels, and we see it most at the cross, right? It's the love of Jesus to us. And the Lord's Supper, guys, is for all those who are trusting in Christ and ongoingly repenting of their sin. And I was thinking about it this week, and actually one of you reminded me of the Heidelberg Catechism. I love the answer there, who can come to the Lord's Supper, and I think we have that here. This is so helpful, and because, okay, let me just back up. There's a wrestle here. When we think about the Lord's Supper, we do not want people who are truly trusting in Jesus and repentant and are just really in the thick of fighting sin. They feel very convicted about their sin. We don't want them to not come, right? Because this is one of the ways we're fed, right? But on the flip side, the Lord's very clear that he does not, it's not what we want, he does not want people to come that are in unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin would be like, I'm just not doing what he wants, and I'm not going to, 
right? That would be a case where you shouldn't take it. But what you should do if you're in that situation is you should take another look at Jesus and ask yourself why. Like, this is incredible love. This would be worth giving up any sin for. It'd be worth putting yourself through any difficulty to follow him, right? It'd be worth losing your life. Okay, so the Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way, and I love this. so helpful because I think it's so well put. Who is to come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sin. Can I get a hand? Displeased with yourself. I am displeased with myself because of my sin, for sure. But who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their continued weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. Can I get a hand on that? Like, I am very displeased with myself. And yet I'm trusting that Jesus is covering that by his blood as I repent of my sin and trust in him, okay? And third qualification to do it. And who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Isn't that cool? That's the repentance, right? That's like, I actually do not intend to continue my sin. I today am repenting of it. I'm trusting in him to help me to do this as he would through the Spirit this week, right? If you have those three things, and then it ends with this, and this is important too, by the way. You don't want to cut it off here. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment to themselves. That's from 1 Corinthians. It's very, very biblical. And I think the thing is, is that some believers will see themselves as hypocrite or unrepentant when they're not. And I think that some hypocrites and unrepentant will see themselves as fine. But that's for the Holy Spirit to deal with. My, the important thing is just that I give you the instruction here, right? And so if you are disappointed with your sin, <laughs> yourself, if you're trusting in Jesus and you desire to more and more live a faithful life and repent of your sin, then, then you should come. You should not consider yourself a hypocrite or unrepentant, okay? But I would say if you're in that last category, you really, 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 the solution to that would be to see Jesus, see his death for you, see his broken body and his shed blood in your place and be like, what was I thinking, right? What was I thinking holding on to this? So as we take the bread and the cup, let's celebrate that we're saved by God's faithfulness, not ours. Jesus at the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal, said this, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we're remembering that his blood gives us the new covenant. And let's celebrate God's presence with us. Jesus said this, this is my body and this is my blood. Not meaning that the elements become his physical body and blood, but meaning that the Spirit does bring us into real communion with his body. Somehow. Somehow when we take the Lord's Supper, we're communing with Christ in a special way. And so we have true communion with him. We feed our souls on Christ as we do this. This is actually a very important way in which God feeds us. It's kind of like a spiritual manna that God gives us in the wilderness each week. Jesus is leading us to a true promised land, right? We're not there yet. He said, and also said at the Lord's Supper, he said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Meaning that we're going to be taken to a true promised land. That, that new earth that's promised is coming. Jesus is coming to bring that for us. Until then, we're just like in Exodus. We're wandering in the wilderness. We're wilderness wanderers. And we need to be fed. And we need to be strengthened to be able to follow him better. And that's what this is about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us and choosing us before you even made the world. And we thank you that you did not withhold your own son, your only son, to be crucified 
as our Savior and for us to follow as our risen King. And Jesus, we thank you. How can we thank you? How can we thank you enough for giving your own body and, and, and soul on the cross for us that you would suffer in our place the penalty of our sin in both body and soul? And we thank you for that, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for giving us the gift of faith and opening our eyes to love and trust you. We thank you for feeding us today in your holy word. We're so excited for this book of Exodus, which you've inspired to feed us. And we pray, Lord, that we'd be faithful in the teaching and the hearing and the studying of this book over the next few months. And now, Holy Spirit, we pray, feed us the presence of Christ through the table, that we would love you more, that we would love what you command and delight in what you promise. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.